0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winnerty and today I'm talking to Gary Whitta, who wrote the story for Rogue One, the Marvel adaptation of The Last Jedi, as well as numerous Rebels episodes. We talk about his first experience with the saga, his influences for Rogue One, and even his pitch for a last Starfighter remake. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 13, Gary Whitta. Well, welcome to another episode of Talking Bay 94. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm joined with uh, Gary Whitta, who's actually, uh, I think I saw it referred to as a Grand Slam of uh, Star Wars creators, who has now worked on... Uh, the movies, the TV shows, the comic books, and the books itself. And so, uh, Mr. Wooded, thank you so much for for taking the time today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's cool to be here.
0: So, before we kind of get into actually writing, Rogue One especially, what was your first experience with the saga? Did you grow up with it, or, or how did you first interact with the movies?
1: So I was born in 72, so I would have been five when the original film came out. Mm-hmm. I was too young to see it at the theatre, but I remember seeing it when it was... So I grew up in the UK, so when it was first shown on uh, British broadcast television. That was the that was my first opportunity to see it, because that, of course, this predates VHS tapes and home video and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I first saw Star Wars um, on the British uh, commercial television. And it's funny, I uh, I taped it. It was, um, it was... I think it was the first videotape I ever had that I kind of wore out. I watched <laughs> it so many times. And the funny thing, the funny thing about it was the the version that I saw had commercial breaks cut into it, you know, as, as movies often do when they're shown on television. And so my uh, to this day, when I see Star Wars, the original one, the the my first experience with it, I saw it so many times, that I almost still kind of anticipate the commercial breaks because I remember exactly where they were in the original film when they first broadcast. Mm-hmm. So it's actually kind of nice as, as someone who first watched Star Wars probably five hundred times with commercial breaks, I had to fast forward through. It's actually nice now to be able to watch it with without them that was the first, obviously, the first one that I saw. The first one that I saw at the theater was, was Empire and then mm-hmm. uh, and then Jedi, obviously. Uh,
0: did that inspire you at all, your love for Star Wars when you first began writing? Or kind of what was your motivation to become a professional writer?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you talk, you talk to a lot of writers or filmmakers from my generation that, that grew up with the original Star Wars, I mean, so many of them will, will, will tell you from that very, very first, you know, the opening shot of the Star Destroyer coming coming uh, over the top of the camera. Mm-hmm it's it's such an it's such an amazing or inspiring moment that a lot of filmmakers will tell you that right there like two minutes into the film that's it they're they're hooked they know that they want to be filmmakers this kind of stuff for the rest of their lives that was certainly me i think for for me it was a combination of the original star wars trilogy and the movie time bandits between that between oh. those two those 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 were the those were the films that made me for a young age convince me that this is what i want to do with my career when i was when i was old enough to get into it
0: two kenny baker vehicles right there Right. that's
1: that's right that's <laughs> right it's, if it's that's that's the connection is the k Baker connection?
0: uh No, Time Bandits. I-, I think is severely underrated. Just taking a little segue real fast. I mean that. I mean, if you go back and watch that now, some of the stuff that they're doing is has still not really been matched in terms of what the fantasy genre and, and that kind of whole weird universe has looked like.
1: Yeah, I wish that uh, more people knew about it. I think because it's kind of in this. Weird kind of obscure British Terry Gilliam film, but mm-hmm. from from kind of before the time that he was really well known as a filmmaker. Right. A lot of people haven't seen it. I just watched it recently. I got the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Went back and rewatched it, and it really holds up. And I I think I heard recently that uh, Apple is trying to uh, make a TV series out of it. In in, in watching it again, I remember thinking like, the the original movie holds. You know, it's such a great idea. You know these these miscreants with a with a map of uh, of time and space that are using it not for, not for good but just to steal stuff and pull off through different you know, historical time periods. It's such a brilliant idea. Right. I really do hope we get to see more at some point.
0: That would be that would be really great. And now Terry Gilliam, you know, working with Adam Driver, kind of continue to tinker with, you know, some Star Wars alums, so. I'm excited for Don Quixote, I think, I mean, finally when you actually get to see that, I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be something cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll watch anything that that, that he does. He's obviously such a such a unique uh, voice as a filmmaker. There's very few people out there that make films like him. But what kind of Star Wars film he would make, actually, that would probably be really big.
0: I, I would love that, right? I wonder, I mean, it would have to be something crazy, like a, like a Jabba's Palace or something, or it would be something weird. A Force movie with him would be super neat.
1: I remember reading uh, one of the old Star Wars comics from years ago, it was Tales from Jabba's Palace, Mm. there's just various kind of stories of criminal intrigue, and uh, that'll be a good TV series for sure.
0: Oh, I'd love that. Kind of talking about Star Wars now, how did you first get involved with, I guess, Rogue One was your first project with Lucasfilm. How did that even come about? I, I mean,
1: I had been writing for several years at that point. I had two films made. Uh, my first film, Book of Eli, and then I uh, co-wrote a film with them, like Shyamalan called After Earth, that he directed. And I, I got a call from um, from my manager saying, do you want to take a, uh, a meeting at Lucasfilm? To which the answer of course is is yes. I mean, who doesn't say yes to that?
0: Yeah, that's a hard thing to say no to. Uh, a,
1: f- a few months previously, I had heard the news, as everyone did. I think it's like it's almost like our Kennedy moment, but in a good way everybody remembers where they were when they heard the news that Disney had bought Lucasfilm Mm -hmm. um and were bringing it back and if you remember the original announcement didn't have JJ in it or anything there was just it was just the news that they were going to make episodes seven eight and nine and I believe Michael Arndt was the only person that was announced at that point that he was writing the initial script for episode seven and I did what I imagine every screenwriter in town did in that moment which was call my agent and say look (laughs) I know it's a long shot but you got to get me in that room I got to you know I got to try and get in on a Star Wars film, and I never seriously imagined that I would, anybody would want to talk to me because you know Star Wars is Star Wars, and every every you know I'm I've got some stature as a writer. There's probably two hundred, three hundred that I would consider more more qualified to be in one of those meetings than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they called me and they asked me to come in. I sat down with Kiri Hart and Rain Roberts from Lucas from Story Group. who are both great people. I love them. Got to know him very well, and I love them both. And it was a very, very casual, very non-specific meeting. They just—I didn't quite know why I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in, in Hollywood what they call a general meeting, just kind of like a getting-to-know-you kind of thing. Um, and I sat with them and talked about my love of Star Wars. Talked about how I uh, froze my, um, my Han Solo action figure in the ice cube tray when I was a kid, <laughs> and then thought about it in warm water to kind of simulate the, the carbonite. <laughs> and just my how I cried at the end of *Return of the Jedi* when I was a kid because I was so overwhelmed with emotion that you know Vader had sacrificed himself to save his son. It's just all such great stuff and and, uh, didn't quite know exactly why I was there um, I thought it might have been for a, maybe a, a video game. I've got a video game background, Correct. so I was thinking maybe they want to talk to me about a game. Because I knew that they were going to open up all of this. They weren't just going to make movies. Mm-hmm. They were going to make TV shows and comic books and video games and novels and all kinds of – I would have been happy to do anything. It never really occurred to me seriously that they were considering me for a film.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but it turned out to be Rogue One. I was kind of amazed when they sent me uh, this outline that John Nolan had written. They said, tell us what you think of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I honestly – and you're going to think I'm joking, but it's true. I called them back and said, I think you've sent me the wrong file because this, this is for a feature film. On this surely they went yeah yeah what do you think I was like oh my god this is amazing and that and
0: that was that was the beginning of it so so that John Knoll outline I think it was Destroyer of Worlds is what it was called it was originally called Destroyer of Worlds that's right what was your first thought about it and then how did you take that initial story which was I I assume a relatively rough outline of, of what uh, Mr Knoll was thinking and then how did you work with Gareth Edwards and how did you work with the story group to kind of form that into a full story
1: well I mean my first instinct for it was what a great idea you know it's I, I think it's so You know, it's literally the very, very first thing that you learn about in all of Star Wars. Like the opening uh, words of the crawl are about how the rebels stole the Death Star plans. So it's the very, very first thing you ever learn about the Death Star universe. So it kind of feels like going way back to the beginning. The idea of doing a companion piece to the first film is is, as daunting as that is. You know, there have been in the extended universe, now the Legends universe, there have been various. Uh, different of how the Rebels stole the Death Star plans, but never a really definitive one. Uh, So I love the idea of doing that. And the way that John, I think, imagined it, it seemed to me that what he wanted to make was kind of an old-fashioned, dirty dozen, you know, kind of men behind enemy lines, uh, like a commando raid film, you know, Guns and Navarro. I love those movies. I grew up on those when I was a kid. And so I went in and now I have to go back in and now I've got to meet with John and Kiri. And meeting with John is, you know, for anyone who knows the Star Wars universe and and the people who made it, meeting with John Noll is a very uh, daunting proposition because he's a legend.
0: I mean, he made Photoshop.
1: Yeah, and and he co-created Photoshop. I mean, you know, if you're a nerd of any stripe, yeah, John Noll is a, is you know he's one of those guys that you just kind of starstruck to meet. Right. But he's a very nice guy. Makes you feel you know puts you at your ease. And I sat down with him and uh, and talked a little bit about what I thought the movie was. Mentioned the Dirty Dozen and now I love those old-fashioned uh, kind of World War Two movies. You know, there's always a scene in those movies where you know like Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton have to get dressed up as Nazis and infiltrate you know the Nazi tower. And <laughs> that in fact is it's exactly what you end up seeing in Rogue One. Right when they right. put on the Imperial uniforms and infiltrate the Imperial base. Right. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that uh, reference in there. I think the thing that I said that kind of that unlocked it. For for me, was I referenced Zero Dark Thirty a lot. Uh, because, you know, in Zero Dark Thirty, you've got this very determined young woman uh, who knows that uh, the bad guys are up to something and is is trying to, you know, find a sum of Inland and is trying to convince her superiors that, you know, we've got to go get this guy. Like, I think I really think he's here. And that was kind of the original version that we had of Jin Erso was, was this young rebel soldier who was trying to convince, who, who suspected, who had some clue to the fact that the, re- the Empire were building the Death Star in secret and was trying to convince the rebels, uh, the rebel leadership, that they needed to take this seriously. And so that was what I pitched them initially, and then after they gave me the job, they showed me this much more detailed pitch deck that John Knoll had made for Kathy Kennedy. And there was a lot of Zero Dark Thirty referencing in there. And so I think that when I said that, because that was a big reference point for John, and I had arrived at that same reference point by myself, I think that they, they thought, okay, these two guys will probably be able to collaborate, I think.
0: So the differences, I guess, in in the original Knoll outline and then kind of the story that you ended up carving, I guess Jin was always a part of it, but I guess it changed. Were there any other major changes? I know the ending changed. Obviously, but were there any kind of things that you worked out throughout the story that you're the most proud of or that you thought were the most important to fix before taking it to a script?
1: I think probably the, the, the biggest thing that Gareth and I hit on very early and the, that remained all the way through to the end, because it was such a key part of it, and it's the part that I'm the most proud of, I think, from a storytelling point of view, the floor in the Death Star wasn't just a design or an accident. It was put there deliberately mm-hmm. um, in an, in an overt, or a covert, I should say, act of, act of rebellion. I love the idea that there used to be a lot of people on the internet that say, oh, well, if the Empire is so clever, how did they miss this glaring floor in the Death right. Star? Right, yeah. And I, and I thought, I'll, I'll tell you how they missed it. How about yeah. if it was put there deliberately by someone smarter than they were? And I love the idea idea that you know Luke's able to destroy the Death Star not because of some random design flaw by the um, by the empire uh, but because he's actually fulfilling a mission that was originally started by Galen Ursa when he when he you know he said basically said to himself I'm not going to do this like they, they can force me they can force me to build the death star but they can't force me to try and undo the work that, that they're forcing me to do and so the idea that he that he um, deliberately designed in that exhaust port uh, as a as a deliberate flaw that could lady be led by the rebellion uh, is something that I'm very very proud of it kind of you know it's fundamental now to the Star Wars canon I remember the first time that we saw it at the prim- at the, at the prim- in Hollywood, uh, that moment when Mads Mikkelsen is saying, "There's a, you know, I've designed a floor into the Death Star, and you hear everyone in the audience go, oh, this is such a great moment when you realize that we've just added something really cool to the canon. I think yeah. that's one of my favorite things for sure.
0: That's so great. I, I think, I mean, you kind of mentioned it. Rogue One had probably the hardest challenge of any movie besides Force Awakens to bring back Star Wars, but this was to inform more of the storytelling of the original Star Wars movie, right? And And now, like me watching A New Hope is uh, irrevocably changed, right? I, I can't watch A New Hope without thinking about Jin and the rest of the rebels. I can't think about. Uh, a New Hope, without thinking about the steps it took to even get Luke into that X-wing to blow up the Death Star, and right. Uh, how did you approach A New Hope then, um, knowing that your your movie was going to just bookend probably one of the most important movies of all time? Did you scour it? Did you kind of approach it as a separate beast, or or what was your process to something that's so sacred?
1: I mean, that was the opportunity for sure was to was to do something that was connected to the. You know, I grew up with you know everyone. Let me start here. Everyone grows up. If whatever the generation of Star Wars was that, that was around when they grew up, that's the one that they like. So there are kids that grew up with the prequels that really like the prequels. There are kids growing up now with the JJ, era. you know, for them, Kylo Ren and Rey and Mars and, and those characters are Star Wars. For me, it was the original trilogy. So Luke and Han and, you know, the rebels and the Empire, that's that's Star Wars to me. Um, and I like the other movies too, but, you know, the ones that are most special to me are the ones that, informed, you know, that, that first imprinted on me when I was a kid. Was, was being able to go back to, you know, original Stormtroopers, original Destroyers, original TIE Fighters you know, rebellion, um, you know, the empire, and all of the stuff that, right. that that imprinted on me when I was a kid. At the same time, that's tremendously nerve-wracking, right? Because the original Star Wars mm. is, this, is this kind of holy relic of cinema, you know? It's one of the great, all-time great, most influential films in film history. So to be asked to to write a film that is gonna now serve as a companion piece to that is really quite nerve-wracking. Uh, and I remember saying to Gareth fairly early, fairly early on, this is like being asked to build an extension onto Taj Mahal, And if and if it sucks, it's going to make the Taj Mahal look like it sucks as well. Like we cannot afford to mess this up. And I remember Gareth kind of putting his head saying, Oh my God, why did you have to say that? Like now, now, now now you've made me nervous as well. But you know, the first thing that we did was Lucasfilm sat us down in the, in the, in the, in the theater that they have. uh, And we watched this beautiful new 4k restoration that they had produced of, uh, of a new hope. And that was just to kind of get us in the mood. But I then subsequently went back and watched it about a hundred more times without the commercial breaks and just made every note that I could, uh, to ensure that canonically we remain that if you watch the two, movies back to back, which is a fun thing to do, there isn't anything that is that is done or said in Rogue One that is later contradicted in A New Hope. So for example when well, one of the Imperial officers says, you, "You Lord Vader, you failed to conjure up the stolen data tapes. I would make a little note. Okay, so right. it's got to be actual they have to steal physical tapes. Tapes were stolen, and that's why you see Jin holding that little hard drive type thing. That is the um the, the desktop Star So she had to steal those tapes. Um, everything in the in the in the in the opening crawl, obviously, was Acrusant. You know, during the battle, rebel spies. Okay, great. So there's got to be a space battle. We would want that anyway. Right. And so we just think, so. Just a lot of make, making sure that all the connective tissue added up, and then when the two movies right. uh, connected at the end, it felt like you were watching kind of not necessarily contiguous, but certainly two f- films that were rather p movies. That the, the closing moments of Rogue One, when you just you realize that you're kinda no longer watching Rogue One you're actually now watching the beginning of a new hope and i think you're right it's the the the, yeah. the, the biggest comment i ever received from anyone on the film was uh, people who told me they think it makes the original movie better because they you, you know you now know what went into stealing those plans and it was such a big deal and so many people died and the entire rebellion kind of put themselves on the line <laughs> to get those plans out right. and now they're kind of suddenly, by accident, have fallen into the hands of this bumpkin farm right. kid who has no idea what he's got. And you're like, "Oh my god, you better not mess this up, dude! because You don't know yet what Geno and everyone else did to get these plans this far." It's it's a fun. I don't know if you've done it, but if you watch the two movies back to back, I do think it's a really fun experience to do it that way, and you see how all the little tendrils of of Rogue One connect into the the original film.
0: The best part for me for Rogue One was just a very small moment, and it was when uh, they reintroduce uh, Gold Leader into the uh, movie. Oh yeah, and. I have never like felt that way in a movie before. I don't know what it was, but it was a very just like like tangible, like I was like, holy shit, <laughs> like this is uh, this is the movie for me and uh, that I like legit cheered in the movie during that point and
1: Yeah, they went back they went back into the sky they went back into the Skywalker archives and found those old unused shots of Red Leader and Gold Leader. I had no idea they were gonna do that. I remember saying to, to John Noll and some of the ILM guys early on, like, can I put original characters in here? Like how how are we even yeah. gonna do that? And they were like, Let us worry about that. ILM like write whatever you want and we'll figure it out if we want to do it we'll figure it out and you know some things they obviously did with CG you know Tarkin and so forth um but so, in, in some uh, in some instances you know, they were able to go back into the original archives and pull some unused charts and re-record Crazy. dialogue and clean them up and make them look like new but you're right I was sitting there I didn't know they were doing that like I wrote Red Leader and Gold Leader into the into the script <laughs> yeah. and I'm glad they're in there but I didn't know how they were going to do it when I was when the, the first time that I saw that was at the premiere And I was sitting next to Chris White, one of the other writers on the film, and we were kind of like nudging each other with our elbows as we were watching it. Can you believe this? Look what they did. Like, we were just so proud
0: it was great. I was just so seamless and so quick, you know, and you're like, oh, that I was cuz right? that's that's the type of fan service that like means something, right? It's not just saying something to say something. That was like this makes sense in the timeline and it also shows that we we care. And so that was
1: You can it's funny, you can you can kind of tell when we when we did the premiere. You know, they invite a lot of people from the 501st and the Rebel Legion to come every year, you know, to every every new movie, which I think is a great thing they do for the fans. It also makes the premiere really colorful cuz you know, all the cosplayers mm-hmm. come out, all the stormtroopers and rebel soldiers and Vaders and Boba Fettes and stuff. Mandalorian works. all those guys come out to play and then 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 and they were in the back of the theater in the kind of the, the the rows in the very back and when you when you sit and watch it and some kind of Easter egg pops up or anything Recognizable from the films you can kind of tell like how deep a cut it is By the, <laughs> by, the by the where the reaction is coming from so like when Vader shows up obviously everyone goes right. oh my god, it's Vader
0: right.
1: When you see like Dr. everson and Panda Baba, yeah <laughs> uh, on, on Jedha, um You know so you, Small. Not everyone remembers him, but enough people go. Oh, it's the guy from the when uh, when Red Leader and Gold Leader showed up. It's just like a half dozen guys in the back going, "Oh shit!" because those are the really hard to recognize Red Leader and Gold Leader. But not everybody does. But that's right. what I love about movies like like that. Is you know, and some people recognize. You know, they, they pop out some of the little things from Star Wars Rebels. The ghost is in there. If you look hard enough, Chopper is in there. There's a reference to General Syndulla. So you know, it's they're they're nice little moments in that. If you if you're not a hardcore Star Wars fan. It's not the kind of it. It doesn't stick out. It's not the kind of thing you feel like. I feel like there was a reference there that I should have got, but I don't know Star Wars well enough to understand mm-hmm. it. It just feels like a moment in the movie. A droid rolls by. It's just a droid, but if you're a hardcore Star Wars fan, that's Chopper. And I love those little moments. It's one of my favorite things to do in these films is to is to put those little tiny little moments in that that the real the real hardcore fans will 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 spot.
0: Yeah, it makes it feel connective. You know, just kind of just a a full fleshed out universe. And so yeah, moving from Rogue One. You mentioned the ending of Rogue One um, and, of course, the Vader moment, everything is super great. But I think the thing that really sticks out and you kind of think about it throughout the movie, you're like, oh, these people don't show up in the rest of the movies. Like, how are they going to explain this? And, like, really, the only solution is is to kill them, right? Like someone would like Jyn er- Erso would, would have blown up the Death Star, right? You, uh, you, you can't introduce somebody and then say, oh, she just disappeared for 30 years or whatever it is. How was it trying to convince, I'm sure, Um, whether it's Disney or the story group or or Gareth Edwards, that this was an important ending and that this was an important part of the story.
1: You know, it's funny how it worked out. Gareth and I, when we first sat down, the first things that Gareth said, he said, I think they all need to die. Like, I think this, and and I agreed with him. And it's not, it wasn't about killing it. It wasn't like a Game of Thrones type thing. Oh, this will shock people. Like, we weren't thinking about it in those ways. It's just thinking about the nature of the story that you're telling. It's a one shot. You know, it's the first film that we did that, that wasn't a saga film. So we didn't necessarily have to worry about the continuity of characters going into a, into a, into another film because we didn't expect to make like Rogue Two, Rogue Three or anything like that. And we knew that what they were doing was, you know, a lot of these, again, referencing a lot of these old World War II men on a mission movies, Dirty Dozen, Guns Own, uh, You know, We're Eagles Dare, things like that. A lot of them are suicide missions. And right. so we were thinking about it like a suicide mission. And if you're going to give your life for anything, maybe give it to stop the weapon that can destroy, you know, entire planets. Like if you if you're going to die on a hill, this might actually be the hill to die. And, and I were both thinking very strongly about this idea of I think maybe this is a movie about, you know, making the ultimate sacrifice. You know, they die so that the entire Star Wars saga m- might live. Again, if Jyn <laughs> Erso doesn't do what she does, there's no Star Wars. There's, well, there is Star Wars, but it's just a movie about the Death Star going around blowing up planets. Uh, and the empire just kind of ruling for a, for a million years. So we know we wanted to kill them. but honestly, it was my fault. I said to Gareth, Disney will let, never let us do it. I just I just don't think they'll do a movie that dark, where you know a Disney movie where everyone dies at the end. Like I don't want to fall in love with this idea, pitch it all out, get it all ready to go, and then take it to Disney and then have them say, yeah. And so that's not. The, so we kind of shelved it. We put it to one side. I'd love to do this. Maybe we can come back to it. But like I don't want to have I, I yeah you know, I, I I don't want to have my heart broken on the very first big idea that we pitched to. To Lucasfilm and to Disney that they should all die, and so we set it aside. And in the script that I wrote, K-2 always died. Someone's got to survive themselves. Someone has to die. Like this, this can't be the kind of mission where everyone gets away alive. And so K-2 always died. Uh, but Jin and uh, the other characters survived. I remember it was very, very difficult to write a version of it where they survived. And I feel like that was the universe, or the, the kind of the writing gods telling us this is not the right version. Like the reason we plausibly keep these get get these characters out of this mission alive is they shouldn't really survive. They should die. But we never did it, and then after I left the project and Chris White's came on, Gareth, you know, that seed that Gareth and I planted together remained. Uh, get, Gareth would continue to say in meetings after I left, you know, I think I think they need to die. I really feel like this, this, we need to come back to that, and Chris was supportive of it, and Kathy was supportive of it, and, and he, in the end, Disney and everyone was supportive. The, the, initially, to, to be fair to Disney and the people we worried about saying no when when it eventually was pitched, they were fully supportive of it, and they thought, yeah, this should be a movie about the ultimate sacrament. That's kind of what the ultimate heroism is. The way it worked out in the end, you know, Jin and Cassian on the beach, uh, you know, as the Death Star hits Scarif. I mean, it's such a beautiful moment. And I remember when we were, when I was working on it, we watched um, the ending of Gladiator a lot. You know, when Maximus dies, and even though it's tragic, it's also kind of beautiful. You know, because he gets to go home and be with his family. You know, there is such a thing. I think, at least in cinema, as a beautiful death. And I think that's what we gave them in the end. Jin and the other heroes, we gave him a beautiful death, and it is one of the most powerful moments in the film.
0: Kind of shifting, I guess, a little bit. Uh, talking about endings. Uh, one of the really cool things you ended up doing and one of the the stories i was the most excited to listen to or and read i listened to the audiobook but when they announced from a certain point of view was the ramus story which was like you already connected the prequels and and the original trilogy with rogue one but then you went even a step further and and actually detailed like the you know however many hours it was in between rogue one and a new hope so maybe talk about writing that ramus short story and how your time on Rogue One informed it, and, and what you were trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, that was um, one of the things that felt, at least personally for me, felt left a little bit unfinished. Was, was I love the ending of Rogue One? I think it, I think it's great. The only mm-hmm. thing I don't love about it is it's not completely contiguous. Right, mm-hmm. you see hyperspace out from Scarif, and then at some point later, which you imagine is like you, just hours later, uh, it's being chased by Vader's Star Destroyer. So, what happened in between? Um, And there's there's quite and there was also the I mean it's Ryan obviously kind of addressed this a little bit in uh, in uh, the Last Jedi but there's always this idea in Star Wars that once you jump to hyperspace that's it that's a clean getaway because you cannot be tracked through hyperspace so I still had this lingering question of well how does how do they get caught up afterwards like how right. does Vader for you know once they once they once they hyperspace away. Why did this? Why did the Death Star plans not just go straight back to Yavin? And so I wanted to fill in that gap. It always kind of bugged me. And then this perfect opportunity to do it came along when um, Lucasfilm came back to me in Delray books and said, "Do you want to write a story? You know, that is from the point of view of a character in A New Hope, but from a different point of view. You know, the you know when when you see uh, the the scene in A New Hope, it's really from Princess Leia. Captain Antilles is just that. You know, the, you know a lot of people don't even know that's Captain Antilles. Like, we just no transmissions. That guy." <laughs> um who's being, being throttled to death by Vader is the is actually obviously a different actor but the same character uh who comes to Leia at the end of Rogue One and says you know the tra- you know, the transmissions we received what is it they sent us same guy and so I always wanted to f- fill in just that little bit of connective tissue and it always bugged me a little bit that I just wanted to fill in just that little gap and just in a you know a, a few short pages I think hopefully finally did bridge the gap for people i guess if you wanted to have the perfect you know kind of contiguous experience you would watch Rogue One read ramus right and then hope right? take a minute to go go off to a reading nook and read for five minutes and then right. come back and i think it you know, also gave ramus a little bit of humanity a lot of these characters that you see die very quickly in movies like star wars you don't necessarily think of them as like fully rounded individuals but you know i have mm-hmm. the idea the idea of giving ramus a wife and kids and so you know you just feels a little bit more tragic when you see him die you realize you know he's never going to see his family again uh, but again he sacrificed his life so that um so that the plans could get away so as tragic okay. was it as it is it's really a story of in heroism as well
0: no definitely and i think i think you're right i think watching rogue one and then maybe like cook some dinner listen to the audiobook and then watch watch a new hope uh, might be a good way to spend an evening yeah absolutely good good four and a half hours yeah not a bad way to spend your night so then moving to rebels i mean again you've you've worked on the movies and then the book and what was the difference between writing uh, for the movies, and then writing for Star Wars Television. And what kind of did you learn from Rogue One that you imparted to, to the Rebels writing team?
1: Um, I'm not really sure if I was able to teach the Rebels writing team anything. They were you know, they, they were already on the third season by the time I came along, and they, they knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't really need me to teach them anything. I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from Dave Filoni and uh, from Henry Gilroy and um, Matt, Matt Migniewicz and uh, Stephen Melchin and a lot of the other writers that have been there forever. I think what, what happened was, I don't think they brought me on necessarily looking to do Rogue One crossover, although we did eventually do a little of that. I mean, I didn't, you know, I wrote some of the Rogue One crossover, but but not all of it. Um, was just that, you know, once they have some, once they find people inside the Lucasfilm uh, family that that they like, that they think can write and and understand Star Wars the same way they do, and that they can trust, did you want to come in and do a little, you know, a little of Rebels? And uh, I love that working. It's a very very different experience, you know when you it's collaborative when you break story uh, at Lucasfilm you know you sit in a room with story group and you figure stuff out but mostly it was just me and Gareth together and a lot of times it was just me trying to figure out the story and then going away and writing when you write on a TV show you're in a big room at Skywalker Ranch with about 12 other writers uh, and Dave and uh, all as as a collaborative group you know figure out what would happen next what if you know what if uh Kanan did this, or what if Harry had to go here and do that, and you know what if Ezra discovered this at that moment? Um, and it's a really, really fun way to to develop story. And then, as as you said, when the when the opportunity to do some row one crossover came along, you know, because uh, Rebels at that point were starting to catch up, on, you know the final uh, moments uh, before A New Hope, you know, it's one of my one of my favourite moments in uh, uh, in row in in Rebels. It's one of the episodes that I got to write is when they first show up at Yavin, at Yavin Four. And, and it's, again, it's just one of those moments where if you're really into Star Wars, if you watch TV and you watch movies, you go, "Oh wow, this is like coming together now." You know, yeah. it just it just kind of feels like a lot of the stuff has been building for a long time. Just kind of feels like the writers have done their homework. You know, that we always knew where this was going. Sometimes that's not always the often kind of work, working blind and just figuring stuff out as we go. But a lot of times there really is a plan. And certainly Rebels, there was a plan that you know the show would eventually lead up to the beginning of the first film. And so to write, to so be had to write those moments and go to go to Yavin Four. Um, for the first time and and meet Mon Mothma and, and, you know, characters like that was just... And and to bring Saw Gerrera into the mix and Forrest came back and did the voice brilliantly. It's it's just a real thrill. I
0: I love Rebels, especially as it progresses because it slowly becomes kind of less colorful and less, and it it becomes more and more like the Rogue One, A New Hope universe. And I think, again, that introduction to Yavin and, you know, I think Genevieve O'Reilly came back as Mon Mothma and all these things it really made it seem like it was part of Star Wars. I, I will say just... Side note, when they said, like, hey, Mon Mothma's back in Rogue One, and it's played by the actors who played her in the deleted scene of episode three, I was like, this is about to be the best movie of all time. I was so excited.
1: Yeah, and we got, and we got obviously Smith Smiths to come back, and, you know, it's 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 kind of known that I'm not mm-hmm. the biggest fan of the prequels. That's that's not an opinion I've been, I've been shy about in the past, but that doesn't mean that I don't consider them canon. I don't get to rewrite history, and in fact, I was really excited about the fact that one of the things that um, Rogue One does is not just uh, connect to A New Hope going forward but also connects to the prequels going backwards it's actually a really nice piece of connective tissue in both directions It's kind of a bridging film between the prequels and yeah. uh, A New Hope because you know at the end of Revenge of the Sith what do you see you see them beginning to build the Death Star and when you go to Rogue One what do you see right. you see them completing it and so I always thought it was a nice bridge in that regard and when, when, when I remember when we first started talking about bringing uh, Bail Organa and Mothmer into the film those actors will have aged mm-hmm. perfectly into the roles at that point like the amount of time that's, that's gone on from the prequels is uh, roughly the same amount of time that had uh, elapsed in the Star Wars timeline as well. So Jimmy and Genevieve yeah. just looked the perfect age to play those parts. I got such a—it a, was—it was my idea to put Mon Mothman in the film. She's one of my favourite characters from Return of the Jedi. I really wanted her in the movie. And when when I found out that we got Genevieve, and I first I saw her that first day on the set, yeah. like I got a lump in my throat. I was seriously, really, kind of misty-eyed at the prospect of seeing. Oh my God, that's! Because I, I remember at one point, Genevieve and Jimmy were just kind of standing off to the side, just chatting, just, just watching them from across the room, going, "Oh my God, that's that's Mon Mothman talking to Bail Hanna. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen." And I got to write that scene, you know, where they, um, where he, where he tells her that he's going to go, you know, go send Princess mm-hmm. Leia to find Obi-Wan Kenobi. And again those are, those are the moments that were not necessarily the most important moments in the, the film but for people that know the Star Wars history you realize that you're watching like a moment in history at that point and it's just it's just magic.
0: And plus we learned that Mon Mothma I think only has one outfit so I think that's a book waiting to be told. Like, does she just have a closet of just one white dress, or what's going on? So that's my—that's my, I know that's somebody, my by, big...
1: somebody, By the time we returned to the Jedi, might have said to her, like, you know, you've not updated your fashion in 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 twenty years. You might want to, yeah. You might want to think about it. She's like the Steve Jobs of, of Star Wars thing, the Albert Einstein thing. Just, you know, it doesn't want to explain <laughs> any thought on what she wears in the morning, so she can, can give all her, give all her attention to how she's going to fight the Empire
0: today. I will now. I'll accept that as headcanon. That's that's pretty good. So uh, I guess your your most recent part of the Star Wars universe has been adapting The Last Jedi into a comic book and so far I mean you made like headlines and stuff with what you added and and things like that but I think just overall the story that's being told I love The Last Jedi and it takes what I've loved and really you know adds more whether it's Luke's point of view or you know my personal favorite like Admiral Ackbar having one final little scene you know but all these little things and it kind of creates a, a cohesive visual storytelling and so maybe talk about first how you got involved in the project and then what your your viewpoint and how you approach the project is
1: yeah again that was another one where i think they came to me because again they knew me and you know ryan's a friend you know ryan and i and gareth were all hanging around around the same time as you know ryan started on last jedi shortly after we started on rogue one so there was a period where we were just kind of all hanging out and i knew ryan before that anyway but we were all just kind of hanging out getting to know each other kind of geeking out about how cool it was that they, they let us play with these toys and uh so when the when the time came they thought of me and uh, I jumped at the chance to do it. Uh, it was an opportunity to kind of see to, to see the movie and read the script, you know, before anyone else, if nothing else, because uh, I got to, obviously got to do that. Um, and uh, when I first read the script, I was really, really excited about doing it. I thought Ryan, you know, made some really brave and bold choices that I certainly wouldn't. I've had the guts to do. I think he did some very, very gutsy gutsy things. And I thought he portrayed Luke in a really kind of tragically beautiful way and I, I think added tremendously to the Star Wars mythos with 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 the ideas that he brought to it. So I was excited to do it. It's a tough project, though. One of the things that you don't really think about until you actually sit down to work on a comic is you're very, very limited in terms of how much you can do. Not Not just in terms of what you can add to the story, because... You know, you can't change anything that Ryan already kind of laid down, and nor can you nor can you introduce any ideas that conflict with what J.J. now wants to do in episode nine, right? So you've right. kind of got a, it's a very narrow tightrope you get to walk. That's why the book that you read is like pretty much it's pretty much the movie. I don't get to reinvent the movie. I just get to kind of add and embellish. There's little moments for Akbar, and some of my favorite stuff is Luke's interior monologue and kind of getting inside his head a little bit more in the way that comic books can. So is unlike, say, I mean, the, the, the novelization is, was a very tough job. As was well for Jason Fry. He did an amazing job. Yeah. Um, but he gets as many pages as he wants. Cause comics are uh, I don't get to say like oh this issue is going to be 18 pages because that's how many we need or this will be 27 pages because that's how many we need and in a film you say well maybe the movie's 127 or 128 minutes long maybe it's 150 minutes long maybe it's a, b- a big long movie the only other medium that you work in where you absolutely have like a, a drop dead deadline in terms of how long your, your, your storytelling is is in television like an episode of Rebels is, is exactly 22 minutes long because it has to fit into a 30 minute time slot for Disney XD with the commercial breaks so your writing had better fit, you know, and all the animation and everything. The story has to fit into that in that exact space. With The Last Jedi, we, had a, we knew exactly how many pages. I, def- I did actually successfully fight for a few more pages in the end. But the number of pages that you, that you have are the number of pages that you have. And mm-hmm. um, it's a really long movie and a very dense movie. And I had to find space to add the right. things that I wanted to add. So I actually took a few things out of the movie that I felt like the comic didn't need. Like some of the stuff with Luke on Octo, stuff where the story's not really moving. It's just character stuff. I was able to cut some of that out. Um, so I cut a few things, but nothing really critical to the to the film. And then I was able to add some stuff. Again, nothing really critical, but the amazing thing is, yeah, you're right. Every time an issue of The Last Jedi comes out, they'll find the one line that I added or the one little thing, the little interior monologue or Akbar's last moment or something here or something there. And they'll make a big story out of it because everything that happens in Star Wars is a big deal, right? Everything makes headlines, no matter how small it is. Like the, the scenes that get cut in Star Wars often are more interesting to people than like entire other right. films that get made. And so – I have to be very, very wary of that. I'm actually literally just as we, when I get done talking to you today, I'm going to go off and look at issue six, mm-hmm. which is our final issue, and the stuff that we did there that I think is really, really cool. That again is mm-hmm. not in the movie. Um, that I think people are going to be really excited about. But hopefully, we've 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 found a way to kind of add some stuff to the canon that people can can think is cool. But again, it doesn't doesn't fundamentally change your perception of the film. It just adds to it. I think
0: uh, that's super great to hear. I, I think even. The last issue is going to have some of the most mind-blowing things in the like. I mean, the final battle between Kylo and Luke is is just incredible, really, and, and what that means to Luke's character.
1: Yeah, the battle, the ba- yeah. I'm looking. I'm literally looking at these pages right now. The battle looks great. The final. I was. I'm not going to say what it is, but there's there's one page in it uh, which is my favorite thing I've done in the whole run of the comic, and maybe one of my favorite things I've done in any medium in Star Wars, including Rogue One, Rebels, all of it. I, I get misty-eyed quite easily. I, I'm the kind of guy that cries at the end of movies very easily. But I'm looking at I'm looking at the page right now, and I just get so excited over it. I think when people see this this particular page, they're going to freak. Uh, but in a good way, because it's so emotional, it's so beautiful. I'm really one of one of one of the proudest proudest I've ever been of any Star Wars writing I've done. I'm really really pleased with it.
0: Well, that's a way to tease a book right there. It comes out September 12th, right? It comes out yeah. <laughs> you
1: know, you got to go get it, right?
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Yeah, I can't wait to see that. So really, I guess, now that we've kind of gone through all of your Star Wars things, I'm sure you have Star Wars projects or whatever that you cannot talk about, but one project that I would love to kind of talk about briefly is something you teased, I think, back in, like, April, which was some concept art for a, a last Starfighter reboot that you kind of have been working on or pitching can you maybe talk about that a little bit and kind of what you've been working on there
1: yeah that was actually you know when we were talking earlier about movies that inspired me to be a writer that's one i should have thrown into the mix at that point because it really for me it was star wars time bandits and then a handful of other films predominantly among them but being um the last Starfighter. i don't know how many people listening to this podcast even would have seen it it was really kind of a cult hit back in the 1980s back in 1984 i think it came out but for me a kid who grew up playing video games it really was like kind of expression of, of fantasy wishful, you know, young kid going nowhere in his life plays a, plays a video game, beats the high score and then realizes that it's a, it's actually a test to recruit, you know, real, real starfighters to go fight in a, in, a, in a real battle in outer space just such a, such a brilliant idea for a movie I always loved it, you know, the special effects and the comp- first computer generated visual effects in a film absolutely kind of blew me away and it's, it's, all, it's always, I've always held a very, very special place in my heart, The Last Starfighter I've always loved it, I've always been fascinated by it and every time I've ever been in a meeting with Hollywood Uh, people, they'd always say to me, like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I'd say, I'd bring back The Last Starfighter. And you'd see their kind of eyes light up. It's not a film that people necessarily talk about a lot when we talk about, like, the great movies of the 1980s or whatever. But when you do bring it up, people just kind of respond. They go, Oh my goodness. Yes. Starfighter. And you realize there's actually this tremendous undercurrent of fondness out there for the film. I love it. Uh, but the rights have always been a mess and it's always been difficult to, to figure out like how from a legal, from a, like, you know, kind of a, uh, an IP standpoint, how you would legally bring it back. Like, you know, the Lorimar, the studio that made the movie back in the day, no longer exists. They went bankrupt. All their assets kind of got scattered to the four winds. Uh, but I eventually did track down the original writer of the film who does still actually own, uh, some of the rights to it. And he, he's he's the key you can't, Jonathan Bettschell who wrote the original movie as a spec script back in the early 1980s when he was working as a waiter uh, in a restaurant in Hollywood uh, still uh, because of some peculiarity still owns a piece of the rights he would never get that now uh, but he still owns a piece of the rights to it Um, And so anyone who wants to, I can't go into all of the galaxies of it, but whichever studio wants to make Starfighter cannot legally do it without him because he's got like, he's got the missing piece of the treasure map that no one else has. And so John and I uh, got together talking on the phone. I spent the first hour just kind of geeking out with him saying, oh my God, Starfighter, like, how did you get this idea? And did you get to sit in a Gunstar and like all this kind of stuff? I'm just kind of geeking out with big time just as a fanboy. And then we started to talk about, you know, well, have you ever thought about bringing it back? And John's wanted actually wanted actually wanted to do it for a long time. He just kind of never got around to it. So we started talking about what we thought could be a remake. Would it be a reboot? Would it be this? Would it be that? And as it turns out, a lot of the ideas that I pitched to John were very, very similar to the ideas that he had in his own mind for what he would want to do someday. So in kind of the same way that I had that moment of connection with John Noll over Zero Dark Thirty, I just kind of said the right thing. I think I said a lot of the right things to John. Betuel and he really responded and said, Look, do you want to partner with me on this? And we'll find a way to bring it back together. And I said yes, and there is kind of a little bit of a weird Rogue, Rogue One connection as well. And Matt Alsop, who was the lead concept artist on Rogue One, uh, I got to know him during the process of making the film. He's a good friend of Gareth's. I reached out to Matt and said, you know, we're we're going to try and bring back the last Starfighter. Would you be interested in doing like some concept art so that we could go pitch it to studios? And Matt had never seen it. Amazingly, I think maybe maybe he's a little too young for it. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit older, so it, it's a movie I grew up with. But if you if you grew up in the 90s, you might have missed it altogether. Uh, but Matt went. Over, he said, let me go run it on iTunes. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And tell you what I think. And he went away. And literally the next morning, I had like 20 pieces of concept art from it because he went away and watched it and was so inspired that he instantly went away and did all this concept art and called me back and said, how did I ever see this movie? Oh my God, my childhood missed out on this film. He was so excited by it. Um, so we have incredible uh, concept art from, from, from Matt, who uh, I hope will be our concept artist if and when we actually make the film. Uh, but right now that's what mm-hmm. we're trying to do we're trying to figure out a way to kind of just circumvent or, uh, or navigate the, 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 the last remaining kind of legal, political, diplomatic uh, barriers to getting the movie made and then hopefully we're going to make it
0: you're kind of like uh, George Lucas walking around with a bunch of Ralph McQuarrie paintings trying to, trying to get a movie made so that's super cool
1: well I'm not, I'm not sure there's <laughs> some delusion of grandeur there I'm sure but yes
0: well uh, I can't wait to see Centauri on the big screen again if that ever comes to play so that's super cool
1: I know, and the great thing about Centauri, right, is he's an alien in a human mask, so we can we can cast whatever actor. He's just got a new mask now. Maybe he looks like Seth Rogen now or something. Who knows?
0: Uh, well, Mr. Witta, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate This was so much fun and, and so great to talk about one of my favorite Star Wars movies ever, and, and I really appreciate everything you're doing for the franchise right now.
1: Well, and thank you. I never get t- tired of meeting people who liked the movie. It really is the, the biggest validation. You know, we, we, we struggle often in kind of these dimly lit rooms, wondering if anyone's ever going to like the things that we make. And so when you finally get something out there into the world and they really like the work, it's all worth it. So
0: thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you again to Mr. Whitta for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk about Mon Mothma's wardrobe with me. For the latest updates about any of his upcoming projects, go to garywhitta.com or follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash Next week is one of my favorite interviews ever, and I'll just leave it at that, so stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and make a four-speed review.